listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the Pain Pod. You wanna see pain? Look at these. <laughs> Welcome to the Pain Pod. The podcast for all things pain management. Hosted by the pain guy, Dr. Mark Grofoli. We'll be collaborating with numerous pain management experts, talking about substance usage disorders, the latest treatment modalities, and most important, important. focusing on the pain of our patients as leading providers of pain care. And now, here's our host, a man wanted in all 50 states, a suburban city like Mountain Man, without the beard, from the hills of West Virginia, and certified in weapons of mass destruction response, it's Dr. Mark Garofoli. All right, welcome back everyone to the Pain Pod. So a uh, really great opportunity here today, of course, but uh, as you may recall, and if, if, if you didn't listen to it, check it out and got some homework already, we're coming in hot. But uh, on the last episode of the Pain Pod, uh, we reviewed uh, DEA red flags, dun, dun, dun. But also general controlled substance concerns too, because turns out the actual red flags well, it's not that exhaustive of a list, really. So there was a lot that we went over. Um, you know, it's not a prereq for this conversation today, but I definitely re- recommend Pain Pod Nation to check it out, okay, as far as our last episode. Because this here today, of course, is a, a conversation on DEA Red Flags Part 2, um, can, continuing the combo here with more than yours truly, of course. Uh, but, you know, through all the trials and tribulations when it comes to DEA Red Flags or whatever color we so choose, uh, more Americans are dying of drug overdoses than ever before. Uh, you've heard it here many a times. You know, the entire war on drugs or the overdose crisis, uh, we're up to about 110,000 Americans dying a year now. That number has been increasing, of course. You know, in the background, though, um, alcohol, that's a little bit under 150,000 Americans dying a year from alcohol-related deaths and tobacco-related deaths, half a million. As you can hear, those numbers are much more than the drug crisis, right? Uh, Another way to look at it, though, um, an American uh, dies of a drug overdose every six minutes. Other side of uh, the life spectrum, a baby is born dependent, not addicted to, but dependent to an opioid, specifically every 30 minutes, we'll say half hour. There's a lot going on in that statement, right? Uh, and we've got our work cut out for us, particularly as healthcare professionals, but quite frankly, anyone listening in any capacity, okay? Uh, no matter what you do in society, uh, this conversation matters for us. Uh, but for us healthcare professionals, it's our fundamental call to duty, right? Do no harm. Uh, so to make it so that we're not just listening to pain guy here today, we, we've got uh, quite the guest with us here. Uh, we have Dr. J.K. Joshi joining us here today. Um, you know, for for those of us who don't know, uh, he's actually the author of a book uh, titled Burden of Pain, A Physician's Journey Through the Opioid Epidemic. Uh, perhaps even uh, some folks in Pain Pod Nation may have seen him speak 
well, many places, but most recently at Pain Week uh, 2023, of course. Uh, pretty uh, pretty riveting talk, actually, on implicit bias. I can say that because I was literally in the audience, okay? Um, it, it, it's nice to have the mic. It's nice to have a chair, too, right? I guess you could put those together. Um, but Dr. Joshi, so... Um, that a little bit of an intro there for you, of course, but for those, uh, those of us, uh, you know, who haven't read the book or perhaps haven't heard you speak before, uh, you know, give us some insight into your story here. Um, you know, like what actually happened, uh, with your practice back in the day. And you've got some updates I know here today as well. Uh, you had to navigate our justice system, um, Heck, you even testified or, or were part of things on from the U S Supreme court. Yeah. Top ring, right? Uh, all mm -hmm. these things being an appetizer for eventually reading the book for our audience, of course. But what, what, tell us your story here, uh, Jay. What, what's and welcome to the Pain Pod. Yeah, first and foremost, thank you for having me. This is a great opportunity, and as always, I enjoy speaking with you. I think it would make the most sense if maybe I began more clinically and then kind of delve into some of the legal aspects of my story and eventually tying that all together. Sounds so good to me. <laughs> back in 2016, I started a primary care practice in Northwest Indiana, uh, specifically Munster, Indiana. And we incorporated some unique attributes that really have become standard of care now. Uh, one of the things that was unique back then is we incorporated telepsychiatry for many of our patients that needed certain behavioral health or mental health care. Now, this would include patients that would have conditions like diabetes, hypertension, but also anxiety, or patients that would have conditions like obesity and work-related injuries that would cause stress. Many of these patients eventually come before their primary care physician because in places like Northwest Indiana and other places, as you would know, West Virginia, there is a lack of access to specialists. So the primary care physician eventually becomes the catch-all. So as a primary care physician, I would see so many different clinical conditions, so many patients of varying complexities that eventually you start to recognize where you need additional support. And so for many patients who had substance use dependency or mental health conditions or even chronic pain, I would have them see a telepsychologist through the computer. Now, this was relatively new for that time, 2016, 2017. And it eventually caught the attention of many patients in Northwest Indiana that felt like they weren't receiving adequate care from their primary care physicians. Uh, we grew, and as a result, we were featured in outlets like NPR, but we were also attracting the attention of the DEA. And you have to understand that this is at the heyday of the opiate epidemic, more specifically, the heyday of the hysteria around the opiate epidemic. So many patients who needed medical care were often seen as anything but that. And physicians who would provide care for those patients were seen in a negative light. Now, to the DEA's credit, they've really revised their understanding on access to care and now have taken a much more patient-centric approach. But back in 2017, they really had this prohibitionist approach to care. So while I was looking to increase access to care for patients with complex primary care needs and trying to provide care, whether that's in the form of Suboxone for patients with substance use dependency that had other 
primary care needs or prescription opioids for patients who had legitimate pain needs in addition to their primary care needs. I saw that as a comprehensive approach to increasing access to care. The DEA at that time saw that as prescribing outside of the scope. So they began to look at my practice. And fortunately or unfortunately, my practice was located right across the street from the Munster police station. So they began to look at some of the patients who came to my practice and they questioned, well, hey, that patient has a history of drug abuse. Hey, that patient had a run-in with the law. Why are these patients coming to the practice? And eventually that led to the police tipping off the DEA to then begin investigating my practice. Now, mind you, this all began less than six to eight months after my practice began. And eventually they brought in an undercover DEA agent. Now, there's two things for why the DEA agent came in. One was there were patients with substance use dependency being treated as primary care physicians in my practice. And there were patients with chronic pain who would receive treatment for their chronic pain in addition to their primary care needs in my practice. The DEA at that time felt like there needed to be a certain degree of segregation in that you could either be a primary care physician or a pain specialist. You could either be a substance use dependency specialist or a primary care physician. We now know better and we understand that there needs to be a certain level of integration to provide comprehensive care. But again, back in 2016, 2017, the DEA just didn't have that level of understanding. Now, what makes the story very interesting and kind of what leads to a lot of the intrigue that follows is that there was an employee in my practice who was writing prescriptions under my name. She would eventually take my prescription pad, which was still done by paper at that time, and write scripts for herself, her friends, and even solicit a few patients. I know this because the patients testified against her through affidavits. Well, in the eyes of the law enforcement, it's almost like, well, using your example of the quote-unquote red flags, they thought, well, how can there be two red flags here? How can this physician take care of patients that are quote-unquote high-risk and have an employee that's writing scripts under his name. That seems like too much of a coincidence to be true. So then they began investigating heavily. And that began by having an undercover DEA agent come to my practice. And I think it's important to delve into how this undercover agent presented himself and what eventually led to a criminal indictment. And I know I'm kind of bearing the lead here, but I think it's important to understand how the DEA thinks particularly when we talk about red flags, understanding the clinical and legal disparities between these quote unquote red flags. Absolutely. It, it's important to, you know, have the, 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 those, you know, stop and, you know, process moments, of course, yeah, uh, yeah. Of, you know, it will be on the red flags, but I got to have you keep going here. You, you got me uh, hooked here of wanting to listen to more with the, you know, some of the scenarios you're put up. So keep well, going. Of course. Um, so the DEA agent presented himself as a truck driver who moved from Florida to Indiana and needed to resume his clinical care. He stated that he was a relatively healthy person, but he had a history of lower extremity leg pain. He described it as cramp-like leg pain. And he told me that he was taking Vicodin 10-500 two to three times a day for that. 
uh, first thing I did is I had him complete the registration form and have him sign that state he does not have a history of abusing medications. So he signed a document. I then reviewed his prescription database. And of course, because he wasn't a real patient, everything came up fine. And what I eventually it's actually pretty interesting when you think about it. it. It's like some of the legwork in the back for having a, you know, a fake case come through. Yeah, it's weren't crossed and the eyes weren't dotted. I mean, I mean, you you did the best practice of checking the PDMP, and then of course there's nothing in there. So yeah, well, interesting. Well, <laughs> it is interesting, and I'm starting by telling all the things that I did correct and all the things that would be seen both clinically and legally as standard of care. And then I'll tell a, a few things and I'm going to kind of play, uh, put on the hat of the DEA and kind of share what they thought as well. And that way we can have a balanced perspective and that your audience can good, good. then say, well, you know, maybe you should have done this. Maybe you should not have done that. So um, let me start by kind of saying all the things that I did and then maybe sharing a few things in terms of my clinical decision-making that uh, could be questioned. Um, so as I mentioned, I had him complete the uh, patient registration form document and sign that he did not have a history of drug abuse. I reviewed his prescription database and I lowered his medications. So he said he had a medication list, but he didn't remember it, but that the most important thing was that he would continue his pain medication so that he can continue his work as a truck driver. Um, so I told him I'm perfectly fine continuing the prescription opioids, but I'm not comfortable at that dose and certainly not comfortable with something that's stronger than 10 to 500 of Vicodin. So I started him at three at 7.5325 of Norco, which is, um, in, in terms of the acetaminophen content, a little bit lower, uh, in terms of the opioid content equivalent, but I started him at a lower dose twice a day. And that is around 15 morphine milligram equivalents, 15 MMEs, which uh, mm -hmm. the CDC uh, opioid prescribing guidelines would dictate to say that's within an appropriate range for uh, initiating care for a non-naive opioid patient. Now, Absolutely. You could, you could you could state, um, you know, why did I uh, provide prescription opioids on the first visit? Why did I simply believe the patient? And, you know, there, there's merit to that argument. Um, there's merit to say, well, I should have verified things ahead of time. And the patient and I, or the undercover agent and I, had these conversations. I asked for his medical records. He said that he saw multiple physicians in Florida and didn't have a set database to get his medical records, not one set hospital, not one set clinic. Now, in my eyes, I thought, well, here we have a truck driver who's probably on the move, having to go to multiple physicians. Um, in the eyes of the DEA, that was apparently a red flag because um, when a patient says he or she had to go to multiple physicians, uh, apparently in the eyes of the DEA, uh, that is uh, considered um, a red flag for doctor shopping. Um, I apparently I missed that. In my eyes, I thought, well, here is a truck driver who's probably on the move, seeing multiple physicians, probably difficult for him to get his medical records from the jump. So he and I had the conversation about getting the medical records, but I continued to prescribe him opioids at a lower dose, despite not having received the medical records just yet. Now, I, I, I give people the, um, the argument that, hey, that might be too trusting. And I acknowledge that that could be something that could be considered overly trusting in that clinical scenario. What I did to help mitigate against that 
was to order certain imaging studies and to prescribe non-opioid medications as well. Um, I provided certain NSAIDs and I also provided potassium for the patient as well. And let's delve a little bit into why I did that. Um, he said he had cramp-like leg pain. In the eyes of a physician, when you think about truck drivers and lower extremity leg pain, you have to think of sciatica and you have to think of certain vertebral conditions that are common among truck drivers. Opioids are not primary in terms of the treatment for those conditions. They are secondary and tertiary. And that can be seen in one of two ways. Clinically, it can be seen like, hey, well, this person must have some severe pain with his condition that arises from his profession and that the primary line of treatment didn't work. Maybe this is something serious. From a legal standpoint, you have to be careful to then document that is how you're thinking because in the eyes of DEA back in 2017, 2018 now, they thought, well, why didn't you try something else? Why did you automatically assume that opioids would be the prescriptions that the patient would need? And my argument was that that's what the patient told me. And again, that is a clinically valid point, but legally there needs to be documentation to substantiate that. And I didn't have that at that time. Gotcha. The other, the, the other component is why did I not essentially require imaging studies or require certain mandates, effectively ask the patient to validate or verify his clinical conditions in a, a sense, justify my trust in him. You know, I, I never thought like that. I, I never thought that a patient has to justify his or her trust or justify his or her clinical condition to me as a physician treating a patient. So that's kind of the genesis for how the discrepancies between the legal community and the medical community look at patients with chronic pain. Now, again, with so much politicization of the opiate epidemic, it's very difficult to get to this level of nuance and honest conversations. But if you were to talk to physicians across the country, they face this battle all the time. How do you balance clinical trust with legal oversight? So that's kind of the issues that I had. And the DEA felt like back in 2017, with the undercover agent coming now four times, and each of those four visits, I tapered the prescription opioids, I discussed diversion risk, and I provided non-opioid alternatives. But in the minds of the DEA, they felt like I should have known that this patient was drug-seeking despite implementing the measures of oversight that I did. And that should have known framework uh, led to the indictment. So I was federally indicted in January of 2018, roughly five months after the DEA agent came for the fourth and final time. So between the indictment and the four visits by the DEA agent, something quite catastrophic happened. I was raided. Now we hear about these raids and we don't really understand just how violent they actually were. Not violent in the sense like there was a physical confrontation, but violent in the amount of fear that they put into the physician and patients. Um, 
I was rated on November and I remember the date and I remember the time. I was rated on November 20th, 2017 at nine o'clock in the morning. My staff and I were going over the patients that we needed to see and the things we needed to do to prepare for those patients. We even had four or five patients in the waiting room. The DEA came in with bulletproof vest, AK-47s, storming across the clinic, marching in and out, effectively separated all of us. And it, in many ways, felt like it was a war scene. It felt like we were being abducted and that we were in the middle of a war zone. And, and I want to emphasize just how violent those types of raids are to kind of give you a sense of just how vastly different the DEA looked at clinical care and proceeds with their investigations. So now let's flash forward to January 2018 when I was indicted. I was effectively indicted on four counts each count compromising the undercover uh, visits themselves. And the basis of the charge were the amount of prescription Norcos that I provided. So 7.5, 3.25, twice a day. So 60, 60, 60. So they basically tabulated that around 240 pills and they calculated that to be my level of criminality based on the actual number of pills, not the prescription I wrote, not the clinical basis for why I wrote that, not even the milligram morphine equivalent on a daily basis, simply the number of pills. And it's interesting when you frame it that way, because in the eyes of the DEA, they're really looking at my clinical practice and my clinical decision-making as they would any street-level drug dealer. Uh, street-level drug dealer sells one kilogram of heroin, they measure based on the quantity. A physician prescribes medications to somebody he or she believes is a physician, is a patient. They only focus on the pill count itself. And as far as I know, that's still what the DEA is doing. And I find that very interesting. And, and I'll tell you a little bit about why I find that interesting when we talk a little bit about my legal advocacy. But I think we sure, should... Sure. I think we should it, there's an interesting point too. Um, I know in a in a managed care sense. Now this might be a, a new, a different perspective, but um, you know, because there's that street dealer perspective of the quantity. But even in a, a uh, dare I use a word like prior authorization. Sorry, audience, but um, <laughs> we've had prior authorizations in the past that were quantity based for controlled substances, particularly prescription opioids. And you think about, well, what does that teach? I, I mean, you know, four of a 2.5 is a lot different than, well, two of a 10, right? Um, so I, I just wanted to in, interject that in there. Of a, Even in the, in the clinical sense, it's a little extension in managed care. But still, um, we always got to think about what we're doing there. So, yeah, yeah. That's, well, what's very funny is, and um, let me uh, true to point, interject to that interjection and and uh, provide something that I think will be relevant later in the conversation. That tactic of limiting the quantity of certain controlled substances is actually a moral hazard. And we'll talk about that when we get to implicit biases. But it's a moral hazard because it incentivizes physicians to prescribe higher dosage, lower quantity medications that may actually have a higher addiction or dependency potential because if you're only able to allot seven or ten and the patient knows that he or she will be restricted 
they eventually learn to game the system themselves, not because they have any sort of nefarious intent, but they have the best intent within a fundamentally flawed system. And that's what happens when you don't look at medications in terms of the milligram morphine equivalents, and you look instead at the quantity itself. And that's a big issue that you highlighted. So thank you for yeah, bringing that it, up. It's, um, I mean, we can even go back in American history, um, technically within legal substances or not of, think about alcohol, Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a beer or a glass of wine compared to a shot of liquor. Yeah. You know, alcohol was legal, then illegal, and then legal again. But along the way, liquor sales increased. And, yeah. and it same idea, really. It, it's well, you see, it's interesting when you when you look at it with that the framework, and it ties into kind of what happened next in my legal journey itself. Um, when you remove clinical context or you remove intent of use and simply take this prohibitionist policy, you effectively prevent any sort of viable defense. And that's exactly what happened in my situation. This was before Ruan v. United States, which is a Supreme Court case that you alluded to, in which the Supreme Court stated that a physician cannot be criminally charged for prescription behavior unless there's actual criminal intent. And that sounds very obvious. And for many people who are not familiar with the nuances of how opioid cases are legislated, investigated, it may seem almost kind of, you know, hard to believe that in the court of law, certain clinical evidence would not be permissible. And you see this all the time. I mean, look at some of these high-profile uh, political cases. Everybody's arguing left and right. What's admissible? What's not admissible? What's underprivileged? What's not underprivileged? Well, for many prescription opioid cases and physicians who got caught in them, myself included, we were not allowed to include clinical context. We were not allowed to justify our behavior as good-faithed attempts to care for patients. And I, I began deliberately by talking about the pros and cons of my clinical decision-making because I don't want to give this one-sided perspective. Rather, I want to talk about the disparity between healthcare and law and show that if you remove the clinical context, you effectively remove any clinical-based defense. And as a physician, the only defense I have is the only defense I should have, which is I was providing what I believe to be good clinical care. So flash forward now, flash backwards rather to July of 2018, after basically learning and, and talking to two different uh, criminal defense attorneys that I could not use my clinical decision-making as a form of defense, I eventually pleaded to one count. So effectively it was, I, and I still don't remember whether it was the first count or the last count, the first visit, the last visit, I, I, I don't know. I basically at that point just succumbed to the criminal justice system because I felt that it was fundamentally unfair and that I would not have an opportunity to defend myself with my clinical actions. So I took, a, I took the plea and from my understanding, and this was kind of what was explained to me at the time when I took the plea was that it's only Norco 7.5325. You didn't exhibit any criminal intent. This is likely going to be probation and you're going to move on and resume your practice within a few months. Well, that's not exactly what happened. Um, I actually ended up being sentenced to 15 months in federal prison, of which I served 11 months 
one week and three days. And that's actually where I wrote Burden of Pain. So uh, it was kind of at that point in my life where effectively I felt that I was treated very unfairly by a criminal justice system, left with no form of defense and essentially scapegoated to a very, what I believe to be a very harsh sentence of nearly a year in federal prison and not being able to practice for effectively three or four years since the time I was first indicted and when I got a restricted medical license. So all of this is to kind of say within the context of my individual case relative to broad public policy, you have to be very mindful of how certain policies and the interpretation of those policies are actually implemented. At that time in 2016, 2017, 2018, we really believed that physicians were primarily responsible for instigating and perpetuating the opioid epidemic, the overdose crisis. And, you know, we came up with all these graphs, all these bars correlating, hey, increase in prescription opioids, increase in prescription deaths. Well, of course, they must be correlated. Let's go after the physicians. This is the, will solve the problem. And again, as you mentioned earlier, with alcohol, legal, illegal, when we take prohibitionist policies to simplify complex clinical conditions within the framework of legal versus illegal, what happens is that we create a lot of undue harm. And in Northwest Indiana, overdoses continue to rise. My case didn't improve the lot of patients in Northwest Indiana. If anything, it made physicians more scared and it made access to care for chronic pain, for mental health conditions, that much more difficult. And I think when we start to understand why those things happen, it makes sense that the Supreme Court would look at a case like Ruan v. United States. And for those of you listening who may not be familiar, uh, Ruan v. United States was a Supreme Court case that was seen in 2022. I was an amicus party on the Supreme Court case, which meant that I wrote a legal brief alluding to my own personal case and advocating for the importance of demonstrating actual criminal intent for physicians in order to convict them under the Controlled Substance Act, which is the law that I was convicted under, which is the same law that common drug dealers are also convicted. Effectively, the DEA would just lump in any sort of Controlled Substance Act interpretation, whether it's a drug dealer, a physician, a pharmacist, what have you, and then, quote unquote, use the red flag provisions to then determine what should have been known, what could have been known, and then ascertaining criminality on the basis of those shoulda, coulda, wouldas. And I think you've highlighted very eloquently and very extensively the limitations in using these red flag approaches. Uh, to the DEA's credit, they're slowly starting to realize that these red flags are causing as much harm as good. I believe they cause more harm than good, but at least the DEA is starting to acknowledge the limitations and the harms in their previous approach. Now, with Ruan, what we were able to do was to steer the investigations, both at the DEA level and at the DOJ level in the federal courts, to really focus on what's essential for complex criminal cases, that is criminal intent. Rather than simply taking clinical decisions, removing the clinical context, as in my case, choosing to trust the patient before I received medical records. 
not forcing the patient to provide medical records before I decided to prescribe any medications. These types of decisions, as you know, a state medical licensing board, you know, an insurance company can evaluate and question. And, you know, I, I'm open to that. I'm open to saying, hey, I could have done this better. I did this right. Maybe you can question this. You can't question that. But then take that step forward and then concoct some sort of criminality, absence, criminal intent. That, in my mind, is an abuse of law. And I'm really glad the Supreme Court got it right. It is pretty amazing when you think about it, you know, to, and, and I have to apologize here, folks, I'm still picking up my jaw from the floor <laughs> and hearing some of the, this overall uh, story probably puts it too lightly. But, you know, in the big picture for this particular case for Dr. J here, it, it was um, hydrocodone acetaminophen 7.5325 twice a day that was prescribed and presumably dispensed then by a pharmacist and pharmacy, of course, and that ended up with a federal prison sentence. Um, now there's a lot going on in the background as well too, of course, but that, that, that I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one picking up my jaw here. So it, it, it's pretty amazing along the way. Um, now you did mention Jade about, you know, well, uh, during that time frame, then that's when you were writing your book, Burden of Pain. Readily available for the world. You know where to get books, right, folks? Um, but <laughs> anyways, um, you know, that uh, along the way, a lot of the uh, things you were talking about, it's a very philosophical 50,000-foot view. I've, of course, read the thing. Um, you know, implicit bias comes up. Um, you, you you certainly did a, a presentation recently, a pain week with that. Um, you know, how, how do you formulate or how did you or how do you formulate your these philosophical teaching points um, give us give us some uh, clearing of the clouds there. I guess. Well, thank you for that, and I, I appreciate the kind words on my book. It was um, certainly um, a labor of love, if you will, um, mm -hmm. to give the context. Um, you know, being in prison is not a good place, and it's certainly not good for your state of mind. And I resolved from the first day I got there to the last day I left that. I would make the best use of my time by staying focused and finding ways to make productive use of my time. And for those of you who may be listening that have loved ones or maybe yourselves encountering a similar situation, always find a way to stay positive and always find a way to create meaning in whatever you're going through. And I know that's easier said than done, but I just want to mention that because it's just one of those things for those who've been through it to understand just how difficult it is to stay positive. And so that being said, um, I really doubled down on reading legal cases, studying jurisprudence. Uh, interestingly enough, the way my philosophy developed was by reading existing legal scholarship. Uh, we often forget that our constitution and our legal system is based off of common law which is something that originated in England, and it effectively comes from the interpretation of extremely intelligent judges who, through their course of wisdom and learning, develop certain frameworks for analyzing the law. So I began reading them, and inevitably I came across a lot of philosophy because law in many ways is applied philosophy. We hold the philosophy that we should all be treated equally. And because we believe in that philosophy, 
we create laws around that. Now, in American history, have we upheld that philosophy through our laws the best way possible? No, we haven't. But the point is that despite our shortcomings, despite, quite frankly, gross shortcomings, we always try to strive for improvement. And I believe that we've had quite a few positive improvements over the course of American history. But the laws that we enact at the federal and state level, we call them statutes. Statutes are based off of certain principles that we see in the Constitution, which again are based off of common law philosophy. So in many ways, my book was philosophical in nature because I was trying to create a new way of looking legally at healthcare issues. So as you see throughout the book, I weave in and out talking about abortion, the pandemic, opioids, other forms of drug abuse, and tying that all together under one philosophical framework, because I want to develop a certain level of understanding for health policy and health law that are grounded on strong clinical fundamentals. And I think, quite frankly, that's lacking in our increasingly polarized society, where we have to have a snapshot judgment about everything. Everything is either all good or all bad. But in healthcare, Everything is an opportunity cost. There's some benefit, some downside. And we have to balance that, not just in how we care for patients. As you know, in a, as a pharmacist, every drug has a side effect. Our job is to make the patients aware of those side effects, but also understand the benefits outweigh the side effects. That's your role as a pharmacist. That's my role as a physician. We know and accept that in an individual patient encounter. But somehow that framework of looking at things with a certain degree of complexity goes out the window when we apply it at a broader scale, when we apply it into health policy and health law. And I'm hoping that through the frameworks and the thought experiments I go through in my book, that we can start to look at health policy and health law in the same vein as we look at the individual patient encounter. So essentially what you're telling us here is you did your homework, you read, <laughs> you studied, and and maybe at no point, but at least after that point, that's maybe when, you know, like a social media post came up or something. You didn't pontificate on Twitter or X or whatever we call it these days or Insta or Facebook or wherever. You you educated yourself to then go forth and try and help others. And and that that's pretty amazing. And and yeah, you know, you're you're um hey, here we are on a podcast, by the way. Um, and yeah. you actually you have a podcast. It's a daily remedy. Um, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, that, that you invited me on there. I think twice, actually, yep. um, all, good conversations abound, of course, on, on, on daily remedy. Um, and, and now you have a book that clearly you well-researched along the way. So, you know, bigger picture here, I guess, what was, what, what would you say your most unexpected result of becoming a well-known author, a podcast host? Um, what were, what would be your most unexpected result that came from all that? That. People are looking for change in health policy and health law. You know, we, we often kind of succumb to this uh, kind of victimized mindset or that the powers that be will always be the powers that be. I think in talking to people who read the book or have heard about the book, it was really encouraging to see that people want to be involved in improving health policy and health law, you don't necessarily see that outside of maybe 
highly polarizing issues like abortion. But for so many issues, as you alluded to with the statistics you cited at the beginning of the podcast, overdose, alcoholism, tobacco abuse, these are major, major life-threatening issues that are affecting the public. And people want to get involved and people have very strong ideas about how change can be. And if somebody who went through what I went through can write a book and garner credibility and write legal briefs that reach the Supreme Court, work with lawyers to help enact regulatory compliance laws and regulatory compliance guidelines, then what's stopping you? And so I want people to really take that key message that if you want to make a change, you can. There's really nothing stopping you other than your own belief that you can't do it. Absolutely. It, and it, it yes, these things take mental sweat and perhaps yeah. physical too, but amen. It's, yeah. um, all right. So bigger picture here, we'll, we'll go either heavier or lighter on It's always perspective, of course, but you know, being real, you've been through the ringer in respect to our criminal justice system and everything that you articulated here today. But every pain podcast, I give them one or two questions to be consistent. So here's the first one for you. How would you define pain? Pain is a subjective phenomenon that may or may not have an underlying visible biomechanical pathway, but is effectively a response to a certain stimulus, whether that's mental in nature or physical in nature, pain is a subjective response. You know, it's at this moment in time that I realize I think I need to start tracking these and then submit everyone's collective answers on the pain pod for defining pain to uh, maybe IASP or all the international folks yeah. that actually put the definitions in textbooks, which we call web pages these days, of course. But yeah. <laughs> um, thank you, sir. Uh, the follow-up question I ask every, every guest here, of course, is um, what is your favorite pain medication and why? Um, that's an interesting question that you would ask me, Dan, given everything that it went through. So in terms of how we define favorite pain medication, I would simply say, what is the pain medication that I'm likely to prescribe to patients given what has happened to me uh, in my uh, clinical career? Now that I'm back up and practicing, the most common uh, pain medication that I prescribe would be acetaminophen or ibuprofen. And there's, there's two reasons for that. One, um, I, I made the choice no longer to prescribe Schedule two medications. Um, and two, I feel a certain kind of innate aversion to going outside of what is considered the norm or at least the kind of cookie cutter template approach to handling pain and whether that's right or wrong uh, at a policy level i differ from how i think at an individual provider level and i know we talked this whole time about how there needs to be an alignment but i wanted to make it clear that there are certain kind of aversions that I've developed going through what I had went through. And I think as a result of that, I'm defaulting as if my own biases are toward acetaminophen and ibuprofen. You've been through a lot, as as all of us humans, of course. So I can certainly understand your answers there. And it it is perhaps a little bit more unique in asking after knowing the overall uh, timeline and story for you. So thank you for, for answering even. It, it's, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the simplest anything can often be complicated. So 
All right, here, one one more thing here. I actually I, I asked uh, this this topic or genre or question to a, a previous guest here on the Pain Pod, uh, Jake Nichols, uh, uh, pharmacist extraordinaire, of course. Uh, but you know, you and I like you know we we we've got uh, kiddos, of course. So I'm asking as a dad who happens to be a pharmacist. Um, how do you have any drug talks when it comes to uh, a, a kid? Uh, and if it's just too soon, you know, the proverbial too soon or, you know, kid being too young, do you have any plans for the future with that? You know, it's very interesting that you mentioned that. Um, I do have a strategy and it, my strategy is a little bit unique. Uh, I'm actually going to ask my son, who's five right now, when he would like to have a drug talk. And I phrase it that way because you never know what information kids are gleaning at what point, whether it's in school, on the internet, or when they're with their friends and they happen to come across a website. Information is provided to kids in very haphazard ways. You know, when we grew up, you know, before the internet, you kind of knew certain patterns when they would come up, when kids would figure out, hey, I can take somebody's pack of cigarettes and show it to my friends. Like those days are gone and information is disseminated in a very haphazard way. And you almost have to iteratively find out when that talk needs to be done. And for me, I think it's going to come by just letting my son know, hey, let me know when you want to have a talk on drugs. Hey, um, uh, how's school going? Uh, I make any new friends. Uh, you guys ever talk about X, Y, and Z? If you ever have any questions, just let me know. I can talk to you about that so you don't have to hear it from your friends. So by positioning the conversation in that way, I open it up to my son leading the charge as to when he would like to have that conversation, which means he would be more receptive to listening to what I have to say. So I think in terms of what advice I would provide, I think two things. One, recognize information is provided in a very haphazard way to kids growing up. And two, when you allow the child to lead the conversation, the child will in turn be more receptive to what you have to tell them. You know, that goes back to that uh, homework you did in philosophy, right? <laughs> it's, you you uh, actively read, you didn't just speed read skimming, right? Um, thank you for that, Jay. It, it's I, I'm genuinely asking. That's not one of those things of like, hey, we ask every pain podcast or anything. I, I'm genuinely asking as a parent myself, knowing that yeah. there's parents listening too. We we all take different uh, you know avenues in that regard, but it, it's good to hear about what others are thinking, particularly when they have put active, thought, repeated thought into it. So thank you very much for that. No, of course, thank you. All right. Uh, big picture, though, I, I got to thank you, bud, for um, um, you know just being transparent and sharing a lot here today and hopefully providing some guidance for us, not just for us pharmacists out there, but uh, all of our prescribers listening, uh, prescribers, dispensers, everybody in healthcare and well beyond healthcare. Fully aware that there's folks listening in that are, are not healthcare professionals. And I, I truly, truly hope that this uh, conversation was something positive for everyone. So... We'll call that a wrap, Pain Pod Nation. I uh, hope you enjoyed not only our conversation here today with uh, Dr. J.K. Joshi, but you know the overall two-part series here on all things, quote-unquote, DA red flags and well beyond. So with that in mind, join us next time on the Pain Pod. 
If you'd like to join Mark on the pain pod, send us an email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. And make sure to share the show and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. Thanks for listening.